0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Middle-Earth Mixer. I'm your host, Evan Cooney, and today I want to talk to you about the fall of Numenor, the Akalabath, she that has fallen, if you will. So I'm going to be honest with you guys, I, I had recorded a version of this podcast that was a little more me thinking about it real hard. You know, I had come up with a bunch of notes, it was way more scholarly and planned out, and... I don't like that structure. You know, it it doesn't feel fun anymore when I'm thinking about it too hard and I'm being more critical of myself and each take. So I decided that for what I'm gonna post, I'm just gonna go back to my conversational, just kind of me spitting it. And of course I have an outline here that I plan to flow with, but I want it to be more kind of off the cuff. You know, me shooting from the hip, giving my opinions on things. And of course, a lot of it being off the top of my head, When you do things that way, sometimes you get like a name wrong or like a little piece of information off. And feel free to hit my line and let me know if if something's off on my podcast. You know, I I, I don't mind if you do that. Um, But yeah, I, I just don't like it when I'm really busy. I don't have time to just pour stress and emotion into this. I wanted it to be fun, you know, and When I start to take it too seriously, then I'm really critical of myself. And then it's, I I just don't want that for this. I want it to be fun. So with that said, let's jump right into it. So let's start with my purpose. What do I want to do with this particular podcast episode? What I really want to do, especially for those of you of my friends who are tuning into this podcast, which I really appreciate, by the way, maybe you're not super into reading the books, but you are interested in the story, there's gonna be a lot of stuff done with the story of Numenor, with the show. There's there's already been stuff done with the show. And I don't know exactly how that's all gonna unfold. I don't know what they're gonna do to the story. I don't know what they're gonna add. I don't know what they're gonna take out. So my goal with this podcast episode is to give you a solid, high-level grasp of the story of Numenor, what the themes are, and what lessons we can learn from it. And, you know, give you some ammo for, I'm sure that I'm hope, I mean, I'm hopeful. You guys know that I'm hopeful. I tend to be more of an optimist in my life in general, (laughs) but I doubt that Amazon is gonna do the story to its full justice, and that's being kind. Especially with some of the things that I've seen already. So that's what I want to do for you. So I'm going to start off with... I'm going to focus kind of on the latter half of the events of the Akalabaith. But I'm going to give you kind of a, a brief history of Numenor. Who the important kings are. I'm not going to list out all the kings. But I'm, I'm going to give you, like I said, a list of the important kings. Which ones have an effect on the overall story that are important to know, and then I'm going to really jump into kind of the parts of the Akalabaith where stuff starts kicking off, you know, events start happening, Uh, it gets exciting. So I'm going to start by explaining, again, and this is high level, because so much of this requires context, and I could make a eight-hour podcast, breaking down every little piece of information you would need to know to understand everything. So I'm going to try to keep this as high level as possible. So I'm going to start with the establishment of Numenor. The first age, right? First age ends. Morgoth, the big baddie of Tolkien's universe, this character that's very much like Lucifer, but not an allegory. Gets thrown into the void, outside the realms of the world, into the darkness. He is cast out of the world into a realm where there is just nothing. It is a black prison, a black hole, essentially. It's not heaven. It's not earth. It is outside of the bounds of time in this prison. That's where Morgoth is thrown. And that is, you know, because of the events of the Silmarillion and all of the evil that he commits. First Age ends. Morgoth is punished, the armies of the West, so that's the armies of the Valar, the elves, and the men who decided to err on the side of good and fight alongside the elves and the Valar, are victorious. And the Valar, which are the, they're essentially the governing body led by one uh, male Valar named Manwe, who is... Um, the governor of Tolkien's monotheistic god, Eru Iluvatar, on Earth. He wants to reward the men who chose to side with the armies of the West. These these men that were referred to as the Three Houses of the Edain. During the First Age, the majority of the men who were in Middle-earth sided with evil. And the ones that hadn't sided with evil... Uh, they, were, they were wild, they were lawless, they were in the far east where they essentially were very tribalistic and lost. However, the three houses of the Edine, and those are Haleth, Hador, and Beor, these three family lines, essentially, small nations of men that decided to side with uh, the good side, they are being set up with this reward, and their reward is an island Prepared especially for them, far away from the troubles and the evils and the disturbing memories of Middle-earth. Because you got to remember, Morgoth is cast into the void. However, his evils, his will is still moving throughout the earth. His top lieutenant, Sauron, is on the loose. He's gone. His balrogs are still unaccounted for. There's dragons, there's orcs. So the Valar set aside a place to reward these good men. And that is Numenor, the land of the star. This island nation that has perfect weather and all the resources that they could ever need. And they are brought to this land and they are made wise and taught many things by the Valar. There is no sickness. These men die because they must die. Because it is the calling of men to die. It's called, Tolkien has this concept called the gift of men. Which is, for some reason, that none of the people within the bounds of Arda, only Eru Iluvatar knows why he gave men the gift of men, which is death. For some reason, men are meant to leave the bounds of the world. They are meant to die, and this is something that the Valar could not take away from men. They wanted to bless them as much as they possibly could, but they couldn't do it up to immortality. Because it's it's not in their power to do so. Because God wills that men must die. So they do the next best thing and take away sickness from their land and extend their lifespan. So what happens is men don't get sick and die. They essentially get old and they get tired and they give up their life in Numenor. They essentially let go of their soul and then they depart. And they're living hundreds of years in the beginning. And the first king among them is a man named Elros, who is actually Elrond's brother. Elrond and Elros have quite a lineage, I'll tell you that. Uh, And I'm not going to start breaking down everybody that they're related to. They are essentially related to all the important people groups. (laughs) All of the important people groups of the Silmarillion culminate into two characters, and that is Elrond and Elros. You all know who Elrond is if you've seen the movies. They are both half elven, half man. And Elrond chooses to be an elf because after Morgoth is cast into the void and their father, Erendil, essentially saves the world, uh, they are given the choice as to whether they want to be elf kind or take the gift of men. Elrond chooses to be an elf. His brother Elros chooses to be a man. And since he is also related to all three houses of the Edine, he is selected to be king among them. He's also the most noble among them. So it's the leadership position naturally fell to him. And he is the first king among them. And he lives 500 years and reigns for 410. And this is in the beginning when everything is great. The land is plentiful. There is a mountain in the middle of Numenor, and it's called the Meneltarma. And the king of Numenor, Elros, would go up to the top of the Meneltarma and worship Iluvatar and offer the first fruits of the harvest. And this was a tradition that was started by him and was carried on into the next kings. And I forgot to mention, uh, when he became king, he took the name tar for those of you who don't know, Tar actually is a Quenya word, which is the language of Aman, the Undying Lands. It's a Quenya word meaning noble or, or high or leader. And when I was doing the research for this, I actually, I thought it was really interesting because immediately... This remind, And I, I knew this before, you know, I've, I've read the Akalabaith before and I knew that they had referred, the kings had referred to themselves in the Quenya word as tar, but I didn't make the connection, at least, and this is just something that I'm guessing, it's just my speculation, little factoid about Tolkien, Tolkien, as most of you, I, I hope, you know, he was a, a professor of linguistics and he specialized in Old English, um, particularly, and uh, I, I believe it's the... Um, western uh, midlands dialect that was like his specialty but there's an old english word that's pronounced ethel i think i hope i'm pronouncing that right an old english word uh it's pronounced ethel and if you go back in english history with a lot of the kings or rulers lords they had names like ethelstan ethelred ethelfled and that was actually The word Ethel meant noble or ruler. So kings and princes would take that title and then combine it with a a name that was particular to them. And we see that the Numenorean kings are doing this. And I can't help but feel like and make the connection that I'm sure that this was something Tolkien thought about as he was coming up with these uh, titles for kings and princes. But anyway, you know, back to the material, I just kind of wanted to, I wanted to point that out there because I thought it was interesting. Another thing I want to mention that during this time period, there is very good relationship with the elves who are living on the island of Tol Eressëa, And Tol Eressëa is a part of the undying lands but it's it's not actually attached to the continent it's like the forerunner essentially for aman and the undying lands but it's a place of peace where the elves live that's kind of the the herald island of the undying lands i hope that, that was a good explanation but anyway those these folks are trading a lot with Numenor in the beginning because i mean elros although he's taken the gift of men he's still half elven you know, these relations are, are very good, and they're even good with the, the kings following Elros. But during his 410-year reign, and if I'm wrong on this, uh, definitely feel free to correct me. I didn't see it in the Akalabaith, uh which one specifically it was, but I, I believe it was during the 410-year reign of Elros. The elves of Tol Erisea come over with a very particularly special gift. And that is a sapling of the tree of Celeborn, I think, which grows in their land that was grown uh, as a reflection of Telperion uh, in Valinor, which was one of the trees that lit the world uh, before the sun and the moon. So it's this really amazing gift that is a reflection of the light of the Valar, the light of good. And this is brought over during Elros's reign, and it is planted in the court of the king in the capital city of Armenelos. Keep that in mind, because this is going to be a very important tree to the people of Numenor and the nations of men that follow. So moving forward. And again, and now I'm just going through like a brief history of the important kings. So I'm going to move on and I'm going to jump from Elros to the fourth king of Numenor. Three kings come after Elros. Uh, Sorry, two kings come after Elros between him and the person I'm about to tell you about. And it's essentially the same reign as Elros great relations with the elves great relations with the valar they're doing what they're supposed to do they're offering the first fruits to iluvatar they are a wise people they are going out they're setting sail to explore the world oh this would be a good almost forgot something super important folks good moment right here to mention that the valar although blessing the men of numenor with unimaginable prosperity and long life They just gave them one rule. They said, you can leave your island and sail anywhere and explore anywhere you want to go, but you cannot go west. You cannot go west into the ocean to the point where you can no longer see the shores of Numenor, because west of Numenor is the Undying Lands. And like I said before, it's men's destiny to die, not to go to the Undying Lands. Not to be forever bound to the earth until the end, like the elves are. So that's their one rule. So keep that in mind. All right, I'm going to start speeding up a little more through this history because we're already about to hit 20 minutes and we're not even at the meat yet. Okay, so I'm jumping to the fourth king, Tar-Elendil of Numenor. This is a significant rule of this king because of who his daughter is. Tar-Elendil has a daughter first which is different from the previous kings. So before the firstborn son would take the throne, the fourth king, Tar Elendil, has a daughter first. So we have kind of a problem because they hadn't faced this kind of succession issue before. But they skip over and give the throne, the scepter, as they called it, they give the scepter to the secondborn son of Tar Elendil. So his daughter, Silmarion, is passed up for the throne. And her descendants become the first lords of the western section of Numenor called Anduni, those, those are her descendants, the western section of Numenor. And this western section, because it is in the west, and because their, their true connection to the throne that they have versus a lot of the other uh, peoples of Numenor, you know, they are at all times facing out towards the Undying Lands. So they have a desire to maintain good relations with the elves and obey the Valar and obey the rules of Iluvatar. So keep that in mind. This daughter of the king is passed up for the throne. And her descendants become the most faithful to Iluvatar of Numenor. Because they are constantly facing west. Now I'm going to skip again to the sixth king of Numenor. Tar Eldarion. He doesn't have a son at all. The sixth king, Tar Eldarion, does not have a son. He only has a daughter. So at this point... The laws of Numenor change, and a woman can take up the scepter and become queen of Numenor. And the first queen of Numenor is called Tar and Calame, and I think I'm butchering that, but you get that idea. So, immediately, I want you to note here that now, because the laws of Numenor have changed, these lords of Anduni that are descendants of the daughter of the fourth king now have a legitimate claim to the throne, because remember, she was passed up. But she doesn't claim it. There is peace in the land. Moving on, we get to the 11th king of Numenor. And I know I just skipped a bunch of people, but we gotta get through this because we can get caught up in a lot of weeds here. Uh, I'm just going over the significant ones. This one's name is Tar-Ministir, and he is the 11th king of Numenor, and he gets a call for help. He gets a call for help. From the current king of the Noldor, Gilgalad, who is supposed to be a huge character in the upcoming Rings of Power show. He gets a call for help from Gilgalad to assist him in the defense of Eregion from Sauron. Now, unfortunately, the Numenorians don't get there until Sauron has essentially decimated the people of Eregion. Uh, Celebrimbor is, is put on a pike and. Uh, Sauron seizes the other lesser rings of power, and Gilgalad desperately calls for help because he's about to lose this war. And Tar Minister sends a massive Numenorian army to his aid, and they are able to really mop the floor with Sauron's armies in Eregion. They drive him out of the north, and Sauron retreats. During this time, though, an evil starts to creep in. Like Sauron's evil is rising, an evil starts to rise in the hearts of the men of Numenor because tar Minister, the king of the Numenorians, although he doesn't voice this feeling, he is jealous of Gilgalad, the king of the elves. He's jealous of the elves in general. He doesn't like the fact, privately, emotionally, to himself, that he's going to die eventually. And this is something that bothers him, but he doesn't do anything about it. He was still a good guy. He didn't let it bother him to the point where he ever acted on it. But this is where the envy starts to creep in to the rulers of Numenor. And now we're going to skip to Tar-Minister's grandson. His grandson was called Tar-Atanamir the Great. He's noted, n- note this, he is the only Numenorean king to have a The Great after his name. And that's because he went out and started establishing colonies in Middle-earth. He was a warlike king. He decided to create a Numenorean empire beyond the land of the star. And the Numenorians started going out and conquering the men of Middle-earth. And the men of Middle-earth were powerless. To stop them. I mean, the men of Middle-earth were essentially under the domination of Sauron up until that point, but when Sauron retreated back into Mordor to lick his wounds, as he is so often doing, uh, the men of Numenor come out and establish themselves a nice empire. And Tar-Atonomir the Great is a very haughty man, and he openly speaks out against this ban of the Valar. He openly speaks out against this rule that the Valar have set forth, that how dare they tell him that he can't sail west. Fortunately, he was too afraid to do anything about it. So this Tar-Atonomir the Great was too afraid to break the ban. He just spoke openly against it, and he spoke openly about his jealousy and his envy. You know, why, why, why do the elves get to live eternally, you know, while, while we must face death? And another thing that takes place during his reign is a really interesting exchange with some of the elven traders from Tol Arisaia, where they have this back and forth This debate, if you will, where the king in the presence of some other men of Numenor probably, you know, I'm not 100% sure where this takes place as far as environment, but I I like to imagine that it's in the king's court, you know, and these visitors, these elven visitors from Tol Erisea are trying to speak some logic into this guy. And I want to get into that real quick, so I'm going to read some of this dialogue from the book because I think it's fantastic. All right, so reading from the Silmarillion. Uh, in my copy, it's 264 from the Calibath. The men of Numenor said among themselves, Why do the lords of the West sit there in peace unending, while we must die, and go we know not whither, leaving our home and all that we have made? And the Eldar, the elves, the elder children. And the Eldar die not, even those that rebelled against the lords. Now, in that little ending phrase, he's talking about the Noldor who rebelled against the Valar and chased Morgoth into Middle-earth to um, retrieve the jewels, the Silmarils. Uh, So they broke the law, essentially. And the men of Numenor are inquiring as to, like, why do do those people who, who broke the rules, why do they still get to live eternally? And, you know, this exchange is happening. And then the elves eventually say the doom of the world, one alone can change who made it. So they're talking about the doom of the world, the doom of, of everyone in the earth, in Arda, one alone can change it. And they're talking about Iluvatar. And were you so to voyage that escaping all deceits and snares, you came indeed to Aman, the blessed realm, the undying lands. Little would it profit you. For it is not the land of Manway that makes its people deathless, but the deathless that dwell therein. So they basically say to him, like, and these these Numenorians in this court of the king, because we know that the... It doesn't say that the king has spoken yet, but we know that he's present because he does speak. They're saying to them, like, hey, it's not the ban of the Valar that keeps you mortal. It's not you not being in the Undying Lands that makes you have to face death. Like, even if you went there, it wouldn't make a difference because you can't change the fates of the people that Iluvatar has made. You can't change the fate of yourself. We can't change the fate of you. Even if we tried, we don't have that power. And neither do the Valar, Iluvatar's governors on Earth. They don't have that power either. They can't defy his will. Reading on. And then the king, Tar-Atanamir the Great, And I'm going to best explain this statement as I can. But the king said, does not Erendil, my forefather, live? Or is he not in the land of Amon? So right there, the king is talking about Elros's and Elrond's father who chose Elfkind as his fate. So he now lives bound to the earth and he has another completely different mission. That is more of a burden, I would say. And Elrendil wanted to be a man. He felt more in common with mankind and the gift of men than he did Elfkind. He chose Elfkind for the sake of Elwing, his um, Elrond and Elrose's mother. <clears throat> so the elves respond to that. Them saying like, oh, well, my forefather, you know, chose Elfkind and he lives. Like, why can't I live? And they respond with, that cannot be. The Eldar, you say, are unpunished and even those who rebelled do not die. Yet that is to them neither reward nor punishment, but the fulfillment of their being. They cannot escape and are bound to this world, never to leave it so long as it lasts, for its life is theirs. And then they go on to say, thus you escape. He's talking to men. You escape. You people escape. And then they say, and leave the world and are not bound to it in hope or in weariness. And then he, the, the elf, this elf, ends his reasoning off with, which of us therefore should envy the others? And the Numenoreans quickly answer. And I'm reading this because I think this dialogue is, is so interesting and it gets into the nature of the differences between men and elves and how they philosophically view their destinies, uh, the Numenorians quickly answer, Why should we not envy the Valar or even the least of the deathless? For of us is required a blind trust and a hope without assurance, knowing not what lies before us in a little while. And yet we also love the earth and would not lose it. And then the elf responds, We hold to be true that your home is not here, neither in the land of Ammon nor anywhere within the circles of the world. And the doom of men that they should depart was at first a gift of Iluvatar. So again, really fascinating. You have this debate with the elven traders and the men of uh, the Numenorian king's court at least is my guess. You know, it's it's never stated where this debate is taking place, but again, I'm assuming it's in the the court of the king. You know, we really get a look in to the view of the Numenorians about this death that they have to face. It's wrong. Their view is wrong, but it's understandable. They are never told And the elves cannot even tell them where they're supposed to go when they die. They just know that they are meant to leave the realms of the earth. And what's interesting is Tolkien never actually writes anywhere what exactly is going to happen to men when they die. We know that men have a soul and we know that their destiny is to leave the world. But elves view men's death as the gift of Iluvatar. Elves don't understand, you know, they they don't get what, what's so special about men that they're called to leave this earth, you know, and I think that that's something that probably bothers the elves, you know, maybe there's a little bit of even jealousy there, like what, the men get to leave the earth, and do they get to go meet Iluvatar face to face in heaven? You know, I'm sure to them, it's probably something that irks them, like the men leave and we're bound to this earth, even though, of course, they're bothered by death, And they don't exactly want to experience it. But I'm sure that that's something that maybe gets under their skin a little bit. And unfortunately, Tar, Atanamir the Great, chooses to ignore this advice. He chooses to ignore this counsel that the elves are giving him. And at this time, the attitude of... You know, this this envy of the elves and this hatred of the ban of the Valar and this frustration with the fact that men have to face death, men have to give up these materials and this wonderful life that they've accrued for themselves to go to a place that they don't know where, where they're going. It really starts to metastasize into a cancer at this point. And it, it's said that during this king's rule, the Numenor starts to divide into two factions you have a faction of the people who wish to honor Iluvatar honor the Valar and be friends with the elves and there is this faction of the people who want to go with they want to side with the kings they want to side with the wicked kings of Numenor they want to cast off this burden of death that constantly haunts them and This divide only gets worse as we move forward. And it even gets to the point where this king, Tar-Atanamir the Great, he becomes estranged from the elves. He doesn't want anything to do with them anymore. And he dies essentially going mad. Like, clinging to life until... I think it says in in the Silmarillion that he clings to life until he is witless and unmanned now this is the 13th king now remember all the way up until this point the numenorian kings would live these rich long lives without sickness until eventually they would give up their spirit they would even give up their thrones before dying to their sons who were in the or, or daughters who were in the primes of their life they didn't hold on to power like narcissistic lunatics like a lot of what we see in our own politics today people just Desperately clinging to power when they shouldn't. That's what happens to him. It says, he clung to power and to life until he was witless and unmanned. And his descendants did the same. Now I'm going to skip ahead to the 20th king of Numenor. This is when it gets bad. It was bad before, and it's getting worse. This king's name, he took the scepter as Ar Adunakar. Notice what he did there? He dropped the T-A-R, and he just did R. Because Tar was the language of Aman. It was the language of the elves. It was the language of the Undying Lands. And he no longer wanted to have any association with them. So he changed Tar to R, and R is... It, it means the same thing as Tar, but in the language of Westerness. In the language of Numenor. And Adunakar means Lord of the West. So his very name is a direct affront to the authority of Manwe, the chief governor of the Valar and Iluvatar's governor on Earth. And he does this intentionally, antagonistically, and in complete rebellion to the rules and the authority of the Valar. And he also made it a law. He made laws to punish those who spoke Elvish. And it says during this time period, it's funny, you know, the spiritual core of the Numenorians is rotting at this point. But it says that during this time period, their power grew, yet their years lessened. And it also says that joy departed. And we have an important quote here to describe this time period where their power is growing. So they're getting stronger materialistically militarily they're establishing empire in other lands and yet but the fear of death grew ever darker upon them and they delayed it by all means that they could and they began to build great houses for their dead while their wise men labored unceasingly to discover if they might the secret of recalling life or at the least of the prolonging of men's days yet They achieved only the art of preserving incorrupt the dead flesh of men. So all they're achieving is just maintaining the aesthetic look of their dead kings in their graves. Reading on, And they filled all the land with silent tombs in which the thought of death was enshrined in the darkness. But those that lived turned the more eagerly to pleasure and revelry, desiring ever more goods and more riches. And after the days of Tar and Kaliman, the offering of the first fruits to Eru was neglected, and men went seldom any more to the hollow upon the heights of Meneltarma in the midst of the land. So not only are they becoming more wicked, but they're neglecting to sacrifice the first fruits in worship to Iluvatar on the Tarma as well wickedness is at an all-time high and it's just going to continue to increase it says also that their la- their own land seemed to them shrunken so numenor is no longer good enough and they had no rest or content therein and they desired now wealth and dominion in middle earth since the west was denied again still too afraid to break the ban of the valar they will openly disrespect but they won't break that one rule And it also says, And the power and majesty of their kings were increased, and they drank, and they feasted, and they clad themselves in silver and gold. Now, I want to take a break from the status of Numenor real quick and let's check in on on Sauron let's see how Sauron is doing the Numenorians have established all kinds of colonies and coastal cities in Middle-earth and at this time Sauron is collecting himself he is gaining back his strength he's multiplying his armies and his allies and he at this point This is when he gives, he's giving the rings, the the nine rings of power out to the prominent men of the peoples of Middle-earth. And it says that among them, three of them are Numenorean lords in Middle-earth in these coastal regions where they've established colonies. And this is where we believe the Witch King came from because the Witch King being the greatest of the nine, Obviously he's going to come from the men who was of the man who was of the greatest stock. So he's definitely going to be one of these Numenorians that fall to Sauron's lies. Alright, now back to Numenor, and after Adunakar, there is another wicked king named ar Gimilzor, and he has two sons. One is named Inzaladun, and the other is named Gimilkad. Inzaladun is the older of the two brothers. And Gimilkad, obviously, he's the younger. Insaladun's mother is a woman who comes from the the land of Anduni. Remember I told you that that land that faces west. She is a member of that royal house that was denied the throne during the fourth king's reign of Numenor. Uh, But she's a member of that house, and they are a house of faithful you know, they are very prominent in the land of Numenor. They have the respect of the people. And privately, they have, their family has tried time and again to kind of steer these, these kings, these wicked kings, back to what's right. To no avail. But anyway, she's a member of that house. And in Zaladun, the older son takes after her. So he feels bad about the way things have gone in Numenor. The younger brother takes after the father. Gimilzor, who is essentially just as wicked as the rest of them. Gimilzor actually bans elves from coming to the land at all. So no more trading, no more language of the elves, and no more contact with them at all, whatsoever. Now, Enzeladun takes the throne, because he's the older brother, and he repents, this, this guy. He is ashamed of the way everything has gone, and he wants to turn everything around, but unfortunately, it's too late. You know, the, the people have become too wicked. The attitudes of everyone are just irredeemable at this point. But anyway, he, he tries. He tries as hard as he can. He even takes the name Tar again. He calls himself Tar Palantir, which means farsighted. And for those of you who have seen the movies or read the books or are familiar with any of it at all whatsoever, you'll recognize Palantir real quick because those are the, the names that are given to the seeing stones. It literally means far-sighted, And he makes this prophecy that when the tree, the tree of Nimloth that was planted during Elros's reign in the court of the king, when that tree perishes, also will the line of kings come to an end. So that is his prophecy. And again, he tries as hard as he can to turn things around in Numenor. But his little brother, Gimilcad, who has essentially become the de facto leader of this faction in Numenor that is restless and evil and wants to reject the Valar and reject Iluvatar, he becomes their their leader and he causes a lot of problems for his older brother, basically a thorn in his side, his whole reign, because this faction at this point is making up the majority of Numenor. The faithful are now a minority, and they don't have as much power anymore, even though the king is a member of this faithful faction. And he dies with only a daughter. And this daughter would have been crowned Tar-Miriel. However, Gimilkad, who has died at this point, and he died an early death because he was wicked. He, he died. He only lived to 98 years old. The Tar Palantir's brother Gimilkad only lived to 98, which is far less than what the royal family has been living for many, many, many centuries. And Tar Palantir dies. The scepter should go to his daughter. However, Gimilkad's son, Farazan, becomes the next leader of this disgruntled faction that's now referred to, it's been referred to for a while as the King's Men. These men who are loyal to the king, not loyal to the Valar. He becomes the leader of this faction in his father's stead. And he takes the scepter from Tar-Muriel because he's so popular. Because Farazhan, while all this stuff was happening, while he was still just a a prince of the royal house, he was off in Middle-earth winning great victories against the, the men who lived there. And he was bringing back all of this treasure and he was dishing out this treasure to the people. He was a very Julius Caesar-like character, spreading his wealth around. So the people loved him. And he used that love to seize the throne from his cousin Muriel. And not only that, he took it another wicked step further, and he forced her to marry him for his legitimacy. So Farazon is crowned R Farazan. You knew he wasn't going to take the title tar. And it just continues to get worse and worse, and worse. Hmm. Excuse me, if you hear any lip smacking. I just took a break to eat a sandwich. It was good. All right, so we have Ar-Farazan, who is now crowned the 25th king of Numenor. And I'm going to tell you something, folks. He's the last one. The mightiest and proudest was Ar-Farazan the Golden of all those that had wielded the scepter of the Sea Kings since the foundation of Numenor. And four and twenty kings and queens had ruled the Numenorians before and slept now in their deep tombs under the Mount of Metal Tarma, lying upon beds of gold. So, you have ar who has ascended to the throne at a point when Numenor's level of morality is at an all-time low. The king has just seized the throne illegally from his cousin and then forced her to marry him. The attitude of the people is rotten. They are at a point of moral decadence that is appalling. And yet, mightiest and proudest was ar Farazan the Golden. Let's check back in with Sauron. What's Sauron doing at this point? It says that after ar Farazan's ascension... Sauron puts forth his full might against the uh, coastal colonies of Numenor. He has revealed himself completely and has stated that his goal is to drive the Numenorians into the sea, out of Middle-earth, and then go beyond and perhaps destroy Numenor itself. And Sauron also does something else. He proclaims. That he is the king of men. You gotta remember, at this point, Sauron is ruling a lot of different groups of men in Middle-earth. The men of the White Mountains, like I mentioned in my last podcast, they worshipped him. Men were, for the most part, under the dominion of Sauron. Except, of course, for the Numenorians. So, ar Farazan learns this. He learns that Sauron is attacking his colonies on the coastal lands of Middle-earth. And he learns that Sauron has claimed... A title king of men that he believes should belong to him. So he sits and he decides, no, you know what? I'm going to go over to Middle-earth myself with my army and I'm going to wrest control of those coastal lands back from him and I'm going to claim the title king of men and he's going to pledge fealty to me. So our Farazan gathers the full strength of Numenor, sheer might of the people this this powerful nation that he is the leader of and he sets sail to middle earth and it says that they arrive at the uh, port city of umbar and it says that the people of the coast along with Sauron's servants they saw this this fleet with gigantic red and gold sails coming and they fled they had no desire to fight this great host and then after arriving at umbar they march north. So if you kind of remember where Umbar is on a map in Middle-earth, you have Numenor, which is very far south in the ocean, and then Umbar is far south on the map of Middle-earth. If you get to Umbar from Numenor, you have to go north uh, up to even be anywhere near Mordor. And it says that ar and his great army marched for seven days, and they arrived at a hilltop where he set up his throne and sent out messengers to go to the court of Sauron and demand that he pledge fealty to the king of Numenor. And that's what they do. They go, and Sauron realizes at this point that he underestimated the Numenorians. You know, he, although seeing them as an adversary that needed to be stopped... He didn't realize the sheer might that they carried with them. Because Sauron had a very low opinion of men. He saw them as easily conquered and controlled. So, Sauron knows that he cannot fight this great host. All of his forces have abandoned him. They don't want anything to do with this battle. But Sauron is smart. And he realizes that what he might not be able to do with military strength. He can trick men with guile and cunning like he had done many times in the past. So he comes forward. He meets ar at his throne and he bows before him. He throws himself at the feet of ar Farazan, and he makes all these promises about he pledges fealty and he will honor his wishes in Middle-earth and ar can be the king of men and he will no longer attack his coastal uh, settlements, and Sauron will be under him as a ruler in Middle-earth. However, ar he knows that Sauron is a liar. He is not so easily swayed like the members of his court who are with him. It actually says that the the men who were with ar were swayed by Sauron's words, and they appeared wise and fair. Because that's what Sauron was able to do. And you also got to remember at this point, he's not appearing in his Dark Lord scary form. He is, a, he is appearing in his beautiful form, in his diplomatic form. So Ar-Farazan decides, no, I don't trust you. You're going to come back to Numenor with me as my prisoner. And on the inside, Sauron couldn't have been more delighted. He knew right away That this was an opportunity for him to rot Numenor from the inside. But he pretended that that's not what he wanted. He feigned like this this was a problem for him. So he ends up going, obviously. And it says that, it's interesting, it says that when Sauron first arrived in Numenor and saw how magnificent it was, it, it essentially made him hate the Numenorians even more, because again, he was surprised at how powerful they had become. And it really didn't take Sauron long to start doing damage. Okay, it says that in three years time, he had gone from prisoner to one of the, the king's closest advisors, and he just continued to become more close to the king to the point where all of the rest of the counselors and the court started to see how much favor Sauron was getting. And they began to fawn over Sauron and do what Sauron says, because he had the ear of the king. And the only it says the only one who wouldn't listen was Amandil, lord of the Anduni. Remember, lord of that section of Middle-earth, that faced west, that was loyal to to the Valar, that wanted to continue to worship Iluvatar. Uh, Amandil was the only member of this court that wouldn't do what Sauron says. He knew that Sauron was evil, and this made Sauron hate Amandil to the point where he was able to essentially box him out of any decision-making. So Sauron has the ear of the king, right? And he starts to play to ar uh lust for power, for unending greed. And he starts telling our Farazan and the rest of the members of the court that there are lands in the world that are left unconquered and that the Numenorians deserve to be rulers over those lands. And then he says, even beyond those lands, like even beyond the earth, In the darkness, in the void, remember the void that I told you about earlier on this podcast where Morgoth was cast into as punishment for all the things that he did in the First Age? Sauron says that in that void, there are new lands, potentially, to be conquered. And I'm going to read from this quote here because this is where Sauron really starts to pull intense darkness into this darkening nation. Sauron says to the king, that beyond all the lands and the seas, there is an ancient darkness, and out of it, talking about the darkness, out of it, the world was made, for darkness alone is worshipful, and the Lord thereof may yet make other worlds to be gifts to those that serve him, so that the increase of their power shall find no end. So he's talking about Morgoth when he says, the lord thereof, the lord of darkness, the lord of this void, who Morgoth isn't even a lord of. He has been cast into the void. He is a prisoner of the void. And ar being the moron that he is, curiously says, who is this lord of darkness? And then Sauron responds with this sick and twisted quote, It is he whose name is not now spoken, for the Valar have deceived you concerning him. "...putting forward the name of Eru, a phantom devised in the folly of their hearts, seeking to enchain men in servitude to themselves. For they are the oracle of this Eru." Now remember, Eru is Eru Iluvatar, Tolkien's creator god. He's literally telling them that Eru's not real, that it's just some phantom put forward by the Valar to control the minds of men. And then he goes on to say, I'll go back, "...for they are the oracle... Of this Eru, which speaks only what they will, but he that is their master shall yet prevail, and he will deliver you from this phantom. And his name is Melkor Morgoth, Lord of all, giver of freedom, and he shall make you stronger than they. Now, I really want to break this down here. So, again, like I said before, Sauron is telling them that the creator is a lie. And that Melkor, the lord of darkness, is really the most powerful of all the Valar. He's really the ruler. And he also refers to Morgoth as the giver of freedom. This was something I hadn't thought about until I was prepping my materials. Isn't it so true that in our lives, often, as humans, in our rebellion, we tend to look at especially young people, look at this rejection of rules and this rejection of traditional norms as a certain level of freedom, right? Sauron is essentially referring to Morgoth as this giver of freedom. Numenor at this point has been rejecting its traditions for centuries, and it's about to culminate with our Farizan. So, He's about to get this this freedom that he wants to have, this freedom from the yoke of the Valar that that he sees, which has been a, a hindrance to the people of Numenor. And Sauron is is talking about this this giver of freedom that very much reminds me of like you know as a Christian, the Christian walk, a very satanic you know spirit. Like in in real life, this idea that if I can just do things the way that I want to do them, then I can be free. Like, I can do things my own way outside of God's will for my life. You know, I see this theme very much reflected here. And I never noticed how significant the title Giver of Freedom that Tolkien uses here for his character that's very much like Lucifer. I think that there's a significance there that I really was so surprised that I hadn't thought about prior to doing this podcast. So, an important thing to keep in mind, I think that that's intentional. This freedom, that's a representation of what man considers to be freedom. Because what man considers to be freedom is not freedom. What the flesh considers to be freedom is actually bondage. Now, I'm going to move on, but I, I really wanted to make that point. And then as we move forward in this chapter, Sauron now advises our pharazon to cut down Nimloth. The tree that is in the courtyard of the king, the one that Tar Palantir, the last good king of Numenor, had said that the very house of the royal line was tied to. The fate of the royal line of Numenor is tied to the fate of this tree. Sauron advises him to cut it down. He wants him to cut it down because it is a representation of the light of the Valar in Numenor. And Sauron can't have that. He wants the men of Numenor to fail. He wants the men of Numenor to hate the Valar. And Sauron knows that the Valar are strong. So he doesn't want the men of Numenor to have any of their light upon them at all. And it says that Amandil, the lord of Anduni, counselor to the king, he hears this conversation somehow. He is aware of this counsel that Sauron is giving to the king. And It says that Farazan at this point, he's not willing to do what Sauron is telling him to do. Because our Farazan, although he is wicked, he still fears the prediction of Tar Palantir. He is still afraid that if he does something to that tree, it's going to affect his power somehow. So for now, he isn't doing anything about it. But Amundil, who at this point is the de facto leader of the faithful because he is the most powerful lord who is a member of this faithful faction. And again, remember, his, his line comes from the fourth king of Numenor. He decides to come up with a way to stop this from happening, because he knows it's only a matter of time. Everyone listens to Sauron, and Sauron will get his way. The king will do what Sauron wants. So Amandil tells his son and his grandsons, And his son, if you haven't figured it out by now, is Ilendil, the father of Isildur, who fights Sauron in that prologue in the Fellowship of the Ring movie. He tells his son Ilendil and his grandsons, Isildur and Anarion, that Sauron intends to cut down Nimloth. And they decide to do something about it. And door is so stirred by his words that he goes and does it himself. He sneaks into the courtyard of the king that is no longer open to the people of Numenor by orders of Sauron. He sneaks into this courtyard and goes up to the tree that now no longer blooms because of the wickedness of Numenor. It's dark and it's guarded at all times. But he sneaks past the guards and he steals a single fruit off of the tree to preserve it, to save some measure of remnant of this thing that they all know is about to be destroyed. And it says that the guards are are roused and Isildur has to fight his way out. And he receives some serious wounds, but he makes it back home to his father and he gives his father the fruit and his father plants the seeds and they begin to sprout. And It says that Isildur on this bed, seriously injured, once he sees that the the seeds have sprouted, it it breathes life into him and he recovers from his wounds. Now, when Sauron and ar catch wind of this plot that has been hatched, this successful plot to steal a fruit from the tree of Nimloth, they don't know, they don't know who did it, mind you. They decide to chop down the tree. Our Ferizan finally goes through with it. He he feels that somebody defied him and he is going to enact his vengeance on that person. So he cuts down the tree of Nimloth. And it says at this point In Armenelos, and I'm I'm sorry if you can hear the book, but I want to read this quote. It says, Sauron constructs a temple, and it was in the form of a circle at the base. And there the walls were 50 feet in thickness, and the width of the base was 500 feet across the center. And the walls rose from the ground 500 feet, and they were crowned with a mighty dome. And he does this in the capital of Numenor, Armenelos. And it says that Sauron lit a fire in the center of the temple that had an opening at the top where the smoke could come out of. And he threw the tree of Nimloth on the fire. And that was the first thing to be burned in that temple. And we'll see that after that initial burning, Sauron begins to conduct human sacrifice in this temple at the order of the king, for he had been privately instructing him on Melkor worship for the deliverance of death. So Sauron has convinced the Numenorians that if they would just make sacrifices to Melkor, if they would just worship Morgoth, this lord of the darkness, he so calls him, this giver of freedom, that Morgoth will deliver them from death. So first, he burns the tree, and then he starts burning people in this temple. And it says that among the victims were members of the faithful, this faithful faction That didn't want to join in with what the king was doing. And it says that he was able to do this. Not. They they wouldn't be charged openly with refusing to worship Morgoth. They would be charged with sedition and conspiracy. That's, That's what the victims started with. They would say that these people were plotting against their Numenorean brothers. And that's how they would get these people sacrificed by Sauron to Morgoth in the beginning. And then of course once the people got used to it. They would just sacrifice anybody for whatever reason. And it says that during this point, wickedness just amplified like wildfire. Sauron went about the land setting man against man. People were killing each other over small quabbles. People were getting sick. There was disease widespread for the first time in Numenor, in its existence. People were going mad and it's interesting, it says that the more they leaned into this fear, the more that they worshipped the dark, which they feared, by the way, they were be- being driven mad by this worship of darkness, that death just came sooner and more often. And, but it also says, during this crazy time, where society is literally falling apart, Numenor just continues to materialistically prosper. It says that rich men grew richer through the aid of Sauron. And another thing that they're doing, not only are they taking victims of sacrifice among their own people, but they are going out and kidnapping men, local men of Middle-earth, who are essentially their servants, and just burning them on their altars there as well. So all of Numenorean culture has just degenerated. Even their colonies overseas are seeing this just moral degradation and sickness And it's at this point where everything is at its craziest that Sauron decides to give the king another idea. And he says this to him. He said, The Valar have possessed themselves of the land where there is no death, and they lie to you concerning it, hiding it as best they may because of their avarice and their fear lest the kings of men should wrest from them the deathless realm and rule the world in their stead. And though doubtless, the gift of life unending is not for all, but only for such as are worthy, being men of might, and pride, and great lineage. Yet against all justice is it done that this gift, which is his due, should be withheld from the king of kings, our Farazan, mightiest of the sons of the earth, to whom manway alone can be compared, if even he. But great kings do not brook denials and take what is their due. So now we get to it, the climax. Sauron has just given our Farazan the idea and the encouragement for someone, one brave king of men, one who is worthy, to stand up and finally break the ban of the Valar and sail west and conquer the Undying Lands. And if they can, wrestle immortality. Away from the Valar and the Eldar that live there. Now it says that this suggestion was given by Sauron at a great time to ar Because at this point ar is very old. And he can feel that he's on death's door. He can feel that it's coming. It's not there yet, but he knows it's coming. And he has had a long reign. And he knows that his days are numbered. So he essentially doesn't have much to lose. It's either he dies and he faces this death that him and his wicked ancestors have been so afraid of, or he does one last gamble and he goes into the Undying Lands to see what he can get. And it says ar took this advice and he starts preparing for war. And he prepares for war like Numenor has never prepared for it before. It, it becomes what's referred to as the Great Armament, and it takes years and during this time period, Amandil, the leader, de facto leader of the faithful, he goes to his son Elendil and his grandsons Isildur and Anarion and he tells them, hey, this is about to go down, okay? Our pharazan is about to break the ban of the Valar. So Amandil decides to get, I believe it's two servants, to get in a boat and go with him to the Undying Lands like his forefather, Eärendil, did on behalf of the two kindreds before in the Silmarillion to try and plead with the Valar to forgive the Numenorians. And in the meantime, he tells his, his son to prepare to leave. So the faithful at this point, they collect their stuff together and they load it all up on boats and they get ready to leave because they know a punishment is coming. And Amundil sets off. In a boat to try and make it to Amman to plead for forgiveness for Numenor. And he never returns. So the faithful are left waiting while Ar Farazan readies his great armament to go attack the Undying Lands. And it says during this time period of the great armament that massive storms. Start to roll in from the west, and the clouds are shaped like giant eagles with wings stretched across the sky. And for those of you who you know aren't aware, uh, that's a representation of the power of Manway, Iluvatar's governor. Um, the eagles serve as direct servants to Manwe, essentially. So this these giant storm clouds that are shaped like eagles are a representation of his power and his anger over the men of Numenor because Aman is aware of what's going on. And it says that these clouds are rolling in over Numenor and lightning is just striking men who are standing outside. And ar looks up at these storms and he says this, the lords of the west have plotted against us. They strike first. The next blow shall be ours. And it says these words the king spoke himself, but they were devised by Sauron. So you have him again just like the sky. Storms are now coming down upon Numenor. And he hardens his heart again. I'm going to read another quote here describing the great armament. It says, In that time, the fleets of the Numenorians darkened the sea upon the west of the land. And they were like an archipelago of a thousand isles. Their masts were as a forest upon the mountains, and their sails like a brooding cloud, and their banners were golden and black, and all things waited upon the word of ar pharazon And Sauron withdrew into the innermost circle of the temple, and men brought him victims to be burned. And it says that ar pharazon stepped onto his ship, which was like a castle, on the sea. And he readied his throne and they set off for battle. And it says the horns of Numenor sounded and blocked out the sounds of the thunder. And it also says that when Sauron heard the sound of the horns from his sanctum in the temple, he laughed because he knew the doom that the men of Numenor were facing. And it says that when ar reached the shores of Amman, he saw uh, Tenet, Quill. did I say that right? Tenetquitil, which is a mountain with a throne at the top where Manwe governs the world from on behalf of Irú Iluvatar. And it says that upon seeing this mountain, ar has a moment of doubt. He second guesses himself and he kind of feels like he should turn around. However, at this point, he has become proud and he ignores that feeling and he keeps going and he departs from his ship and steps foot on the shores of Aman, on the shores of the undying lands for which the men of Numenor have been strictly instructed to never go there because their fate is not there. Their fate is to die and depart from the world. And it says in this moment, after ar and his army step into Amman, that Manwe surrenders the government of Arda back to Eru Iluvatar, its creator. And I'm going to read from the book here. But Iluvatar showed forth his power and he changed the fashion of the world. And a great chasm opened in the sea between Numenor and the deathless lands, and the waters flowed down into it. And the noise and the smoke of the cataracts went up to heaven, and the world was shaken. And all the fleets of the Numenorians were drawn down into the abyss, and they were drowned and swallowed up forever. But ar pharazon The king and the mortal warriors that had set foot upon the land of Amon were buried under falling hills. There it is said that they lie imprisoned in the caves of the Forgotten until the last battle and the day of doom. Crazy, right? And to me, when I read that, I see that as it's not confirmed when you read it, but I think that what Tolkien was saying here was that ar is granted some form of immortality, but it is suffering until the ends of the earth. He's imprisoned. He has this immortality that he wanted all along, but he is buried under the earth until the day of doom. And then it goes on to say, The land of gift, Numenor of the kings, Elena of the star of Erendil, was utterly destroyed. For it was nigh to the east of the great rift, the giant hole that opened up in the earth. And its foundations were overturned, and it fell and went down into the darkness and is no more. And Numenor went down into the sea with all its children and its wives and its maidens and its ladies proud and all its gardens and its halls and its towers, its tombs and its riches and its jewels and its webs and its things painted and carven and its laughter and its mirth and its music, its wisdom and its lore. They vanished forever. However, there is hope because it says the faithful who were waiting out on their boats and were seeing the crumbling of Numenor were whisked away by a great wind coming from the west and pushed into the direction of Middle-earth. So the faithful who were on their boats were spared the destruction of Numenor. And of course, we know what happens with them, but that's for another story. And uh, we'll save that for another podcast. So what do you guys think? You know, I want to hear your thoughts on how I did. I want to hear your thoughts on this story. What are the lessons that we learn here? I think the story of Numenor is very relevant to any society where humans live. This theme of moral degradation and developing wickedness and complacency, this appetite that so affects our hearts, that affected the hearts of the Numenorians. We can't allow that kind of rebellion and willingness to go against what's right to creep into our society. And I think that goes for all aspects. You know, I'm a Christian and I'm coming at this in a conservative point of view. But in this story, there's also themes of materialism and the wickedness that comes along with being too attached to this world. You know, it's, it says Sauron made the rich men richer. Capitalism. And some of the decadence that comes with Western society, capitalism isn't necessarily a moral good. Capitalism isn't something that you should be defining your moralities off of. That's what a lot of the Numenoreans who were rich during the time of wickedness were relying on this, this acquiring of material wealth. That goes in there too. So these are all lessons that we can learn and pull from this story. And I think it's relevant and I think everybody should read it the Akalabaith. And, uh, yeah, I think that, that about wraps it up. Um, you know, go on my Twitter, let me know if you liked this episode, let me know what you didn't like. Let me know if I said anything wrong. Definitely. I go off the cuff a little bit sometimes. And, uh, like I said before, it's, it's easy to make mistakes when you do that. So, um, yeah, I hope you enjoyed this episode.